This episode of the Outside Podcast is brought to you by Saks, revolutionary new underwear for men. Made with comfortable fabrics and their patented ballpark pouch, Saks has raised the bar on comfort and performance. And if you're like me, you've probably been wearing the same kind of underwear for a decade, with no idea that there's a better option out there. Something comfortable, moisture wicking, with basically a velvet case for your family jewels. Switching to Saks is a game changer. Here to back me up on this is Outside's online gear editor, Jacob Schiller, who recently reviewed a pair of Saks for Outside Online. It really is a much better experience. I personally have thrown away all my other underwear. I will not wear anything that doesn't have a pouch anymore. Not only that, but Saks is made to last. So just a few pairs could be another decade's worth of underwear. To try the ballpark pouch for yourself and get 20% off your first purchase, go to saxunderwear.com outside. That's S-A-X-X. From Outside Magazine and PRX, these are Dispatches, stories from our writers in the field. So I'm going to tell you something that you think you already know, but bear with me for a minute, because you probably don't have the full picture. We're constantly told that invasive species are bad for an ecosystem. They outcompete local wildlife throw off the equilibrium of predators and prey, and generally just take up space that would normally be occupied by a native species. Not only that, but invasives are also really, really expensive. In 2005, it was estimated that in the United States, invasive species management costs $138 billion a year. That's $427 per person. This past March, Outside Magazine contributing editor Ian Fraser wrote a feature called Frogpocalypse Now about the six-pound poisonous cane toads that are overtaking parking lots and backyards in Florida, killing people's pets. He concluded that story with the thought that, at least in the Deep South, things are getting away from us. Advantage toads, he wrote. The podcast Outside In from New Hampshire Public Radio pays a lot of attention to this problem. One of their regular bits is something called Eat the Invaders, which host Sam Evans-Brown told me about. We do this recurring sort of segment where we, where we eat invasive species. Um, and, and since we've got going on that, we've kind of felt that like the whole premise of eating invasive species is, is kind of a silly one and not something that's really a solution. <laughs> But then also, you know, there's just like there's really fertile territory for some insane stories when it comes to to invasion biology, because there's just such crazy stuff that we've done over the course of, of our history as people moving stuff around the globe. And and like so often we've we've introduced invasive species intentionally because they're something that does something for us. You know, I, I mean, for for decades here in New Hampshire, fish and game was advocating the planting of bittersweet and autumn olive and all of these incredibly uh, problematic vines because they bear fruit and uh, the the berries are eaten by wild turkeys and Fish and Game was trying to reintroduce wild turkeys to New Hampshire and so they're like oh this is great turkey forage, <laughs> so that's still true like bittersweet and autumn olive still produce berries that turkeys like to eat and that's that continues to be the case even though that those vines are also, you know, everywhere and tearing down <laughs> tearing down native trees that they managed to climb their way up. Oh, it's like the one guy in the office is like, he's like, your your goal is to give the turkeys some food. And he's like, done. 
Yeah, I like, solved not, it. <laughs> yep. <laughs> For all time. Mission accomplished. <laughs> yeah. And then this other guy, this other poor guy is like, hey, can you can you go undo what Earl did? Yeah, exactly. That's always been the general math when it comes to invasive species. It's just a constant kicking of the can down the road, solving one problem and making another one at the same time. But then about a year ago, Sam and the Outside In team put out this episode that completely changed some very fundamental things that I thought I knew about invasive species. And I think it'll also probably change the way you think about our place in this whole web of life and death and evolution. Here's Sam. I don't know about you, but growing up, I watched a lot of The Simpsons. And there's an episode that lately I can't get out of my head. What happens is Bart releases a pair of invasive Bolivian tree lizards into the town of Springfield. Well, I hope you're happy, Bart. You have no idea what kind of plague you've unleashed upon this town. The local bird club is horrified at first, but then delighted when it turns out the lizard's preferred food is pigeon meat. Pigeon, also known as a feathered rat. Well, I was wrong. The lizards are a godsend. But isn't that a bit short-sighted? What happens when we're overrun by lizards? No problem. We simply unleash wave after wave of Chinese needle snakes. They'll wipe out the lizards. But aren't the snakes even worse? Yes, but we're prepared for that. We've lined up a fabulous type of gorilla that thrives on snake meat. But then we're stuck with gorillas. No, that's the beautiful part. When wintertime rolls around, the gorillas simply freeze to death. This idea intentionally bringing in a species from somewhere else to combat another species accidentally introduced from somewhere else, using nature to fight nature, it has a name. It's called biocontrol. And you might have heard of some of the biocontrol horror stories that this Simpsons episode is kind of hinting at. Sugarcane farmers released mongooses in Hawaii, hoping they would kill the rats that were infesting their fields. But rats are nocturnal, and mongoose are not. And so instead, they quickly started eating all of Hawaii's native rare birds. Another one you might have heard of? Cane toads. Cane toads were introduced into islands all over the place, again by sugarcane farmers, hoping they would eat cane beetles that were eating the sugarcane. But these toads are super poisonous. This biocontrol debacle wound up spawning a documentary that became kind of a cult classic, something high school stoners might watch just for fun. I've had them attempt to mate with my foot. I've had them attempt to amplex with my hand. But most often, I've seen them trying to amplex with hunks of mud. Again, the toads had almost no impact on the beetles they were trying to kill. Instead, they bred like crazy and are now killing off the northern quoll an adorable little Australian rodent, along with some assorted Australian lizards. The cane toads were a total disaster. He said this, and I quote, we've got these bloody grubs by the balls this time, and we'll go on to bigger and brighter things. But tragically, we didn't have the grubs by the balls. They had us by the balls. And yet, despite all these failures, we are still doing this. What gives? This is Outside In, a show about the natural world and how we use it, or how we try to, anyway. 
All over the world, wherever there are invasive species, there are people trying to figure out what bug or bacteria or virus they can introduce that will beat back the invasion. Biocontrol feels like the pinnacle of human arrogance. We're trying to play God. We're taking a delicately balanced ecosystem and stomping all over it with all the precision of a wrecking ball. But what if playing God is our best option? What if it's our only option? Should we do it? The first thing you should understand here is that biocontrol started out as the environmentally friendly alternative to pesticides. Pesticides have all sorts of downsides. They kill lots of insects, not just the ones you're trying to get rid of. They're dangerous for the workers applying them and for anyone else nearby. And so this idea of just letting loose a couple of good critters to eat the bad ones, it felt like a really clever idea. But the scientists who were working on this back before the world wars and going all the way up through the 70s, they were a little cocky. Biocontrol practitioners were overly confident. That's Russell Messing from the Kauai Agricultural Research Station in Hawaii. Hawaii is kind of ground zero for biocontrol. Some of the biggest successes and failures happened there. They thought biocontrol agents were, you know, impossible to do any harm. They were all positive. There was no risk. Let me just read you some quotes from papers about biocontrol written during this time. In the past, it has been made abundantly clear that research in this sphere results in prodigious economic benefits without any environmental hazards. Here's another. No adverse effects on the ecosystem occur from biological control. This clearly was hubris, overconfidence. And to tell the story of this hubris, I'm going to tell you about moths here in New England. These moths are called giant silkworms. So this guy's probably about two inches long, maybe, you know, and he's, he's bulky, like it's a large cat. Yeah, they're, we call them juicy. To see some of these, I visited a place called the Caterpillar Lab in Keene, New Hampshire. This is one of the lab's founders, Sam Jaffe. You know, they're, they're porkers. Um, <laughs> so Lunas are sort of the classic big, squishy green caterpillar. These moths are objectively beautiful. And for my money, the prettiest of the bunch is the Luna Moth. It's pale green and about the size of your hand, and it has these long, exquisite tails that delicately fall away from their wings. This is the kind of moth people would write poems about. But there are lots of others. There's North America's biggest moth, the Cecropia, which has this rust-colored body and soft gray wings banded with thin ribbons of white, red, and black. Then there's the hickory-horned devil, which, as a caterpillar, can be the size of a hot dog. These are our charismatic mini-fauna. You go out and you're walking down a trail and you see a hickory-horned devil or a cecropia. That's going to stick with you. Everybody who sees a luna moth, that's a story that they tell us at a program that's touched their lives. So we feel like these large caterpillars, caterpillars in general, have a lot of power to engage people with the world around them. They're all pretty much harmless. Big, pretty and non-threatening. And Joe Elkington, a moth expert at UMass Amherst, says here in New England, they used to be all over the place. If you read the accounts in the, in, from the 19th century, you, people might have dozens of cocoons in their backyard. This makes New England almost sound like a tropical paradise. Beautiful moths the size of your hand just dripping from the trees. 
caterpillars the size of hot dogs peacefully munching on leaves. The moths haven't gone extinct. They're still out there. Uh, but they're very hard to find now, and that's a shame. So what happened? How did we lose our giant caterpillar wonderland? The answer has to do with another moth, an invasive one from Europe, the gypsy moth. We know how it got here. It was a a professor at Harvard named Leopold Truvelo who was doing some half-baked experiments with gypsy moth back in 1868, and they escaped out his bedroom window. Gypsy moths aren't big. They're maybe an inch long. They're camouflaged to blend in with tree bark, so they're pretty drab. And gypsy moths here in the U.S., they're like a living natural disaster, a plague. The biggest outbreak in history was in 1981. In that year, almost the entire state of Massachusetts, or indeed all of New England, was uh, defoliated. Defoliated, as in gypsy moths ate all of the leaves off the trees. So, I mean, take me back to that time. If we were to look out from your window right now, what would it look like? You'd just see brown trees, trees that looked like wintertime. So back when they were first invading in the early 1900s, Bostonians saw the damage these caterpillars were causing and tried to get them under control. This is Jesse Varga, another guy from the Caterpillar Lab. The methods they were using, collecting eggs off of trees, burning trees that they were in, weren't slowing the spread of them. So what do you do? What they did was try this newfangled strategy, biocontrol. If the gypsy moth is from Europe, let's go to Europe and bring back what eats it there. That's where they found this parasite. Compsilura consonati. Compsilura consonata. It's a fly. It just looks like any old fly. But it lays its eggs inside other insects, which kills the host. 1906, the first introduction of um, Compsilura happened. Do you know if this was on purpose? It was. It was done by the Department of Agriculture, I believe. And this fly, Compsilura, it did attack gypsy moths, but not very many of them. And it attacked a lot of other things, too. Right now, there's over 200 recorded native species. So it could be more. We're not sure. Compsilura was basically like a sledgehammer. Sure, it hit some gypsy moths. But it was pretty imprecise. And some of the hardest hit native species? New England's biggest, craziest, most beautiful moths and caterpillars. Like the Luna moth and that caterpillar that's the size of a hot dog. We did a study uh, where we put out caterpillars and we documented the mortality, and Compsilura was by far and away the biggest source of mortality. It killed about 85% of the larvae in the first few instars. You must be thinking, man, introducing species like this is just a terrible idea. Why do we do it? Why? In the absence of biocontrol, there is no solution. I mean, there's no solution. With pests like this that spread virulently, exponentially, totally out of control, what can you do? You could try picking them all off the trees by hand, a more or less impossible and stupidly expensive option. You can try spraying pesticides everywhere, but that also kills native caterpillars and costs a lot of money. Or you can do nothing. Let nature sort itself out. In which case, you might have to sacrifice virtually all of the plants that the pest you're trying to kill is attacking. And depending on what's being attacked, 
doing nothing could be disastrous. Just as an example, and there are dozens of examples like this, there's this bug eating its way through hemlock trees in New England. There are 90 species of native birds that use hemlocks for eating or nesting. Three bird species can't live in anything other than hemlocks. And the shade these trees throws on streams cools them off, making it possible for brook trout, a favorite of fishermen, to survive. Loss of hemlock is a tragedy. So if you give up on biocontrol, you're making life really hard for hemlock, brook trout, the black-throated green warbler, solitary vireo, the northern goshawk, Acadian flycatchers, Blackburnian warblers, Canada Our first attempt at controlling the gypsy moths failed miserably. For decades after the release of Compsolura, as giant silkworm moth populations declined, gypsy moths continued to wreak havoc on New England forests. And the eventual solution to this problem? Well, it was biocontrol. Take two. <laughs> uh, yeah. This is Anne Hayek. She's a Cornell professor. Back in the 80s, Anne was still working on trying to control gypsy moths, decades after that crazy Harvard professor accidentally set them loose. She was using a fungus. So can you tell me what it was like when you first walked into a forest that had been infected with this fungus? Oh, it was very exciting. Very exciting indeed. And <laughs> um, yeah, <laughs> the, there are just dead gypsy moths caterpillars all over the tree trunks. They basically appeared overnight. We walked out into our research plots out of the Quabbin Reservoir. There were dead caterpillars hanging everywhere. Truth is, it wasn't actually Anne who released the fungus into the wild. She tried to, but it didn't survive. They never found out where this release came from. But over the course of a few years, this hyper-focused, scalpel-like fungus spread and spread. After a little while, the gypsy moth this ravenous consumer of New England's hardwoods? The pest isn't a pest anymore. The only time you hear about gypsy moths now is in very, very dry years. Conditions that make it hard for the fungus to grow. Like this year, which is how I learned about this whole story. So within this one story of the gypsy moth caterpillar, we've got both the best and the worst examples of this thing called biocontrol. You've got Compsolura, the fly, the sledgehammer, which almost entirely missed its target and has this voracious appetite for some of our most lovely moths and butterflies. To, to lose such a, a crazy, wonderful, colorful, large group of creatures, it's a real loss. I think a significant, maybe devastating loss. But then you've got this fungus, the scalpel which very specifically goes after just the gypsy moths, an awful plague introduced from Europe. It's the example of a perfect biocontrol project. Before starting to work on this episode, I had heard about the horror stories. They are definitely the dominant narrative in our culture. Cane toads in Australia, the mongooses in Hawaii. But I hadn't heard about all the success stories. For instance, when California's citrus industry was just getting off the ground, a pest called cottony cushion scale hit. But a ladybug that only eats cottony cushion scale was introduced, and it literally saved the entire industry. Another example. In the 70s, parts of Central Africa started to see massive crop failures of cassava, a plant that feeds hundreds of millions of people all over the world. 
The culprit was an insect from South America called the cassava mealybug. To combat it, scientists introduced a tiny parasitic wasp, which laid its eggs in the mealybug, and again, very specifically, just in that mealybug. In a few years, crop damage from the bugs fell by 90%, and it's estimated that every dollar invested in the wasp program saved farmers between $200 and $500 worth of ruined cassava. So why haven't we heard these success stories? Back in the 80s, this guy named Frank Howarth wrote a paper called Classical Biocontrol, Panacea or Pandora's Box. Howarth collected in one place a bunch of the biocontrol horror stories. It kicked off a whole backlash against biocontrol. There was that documentary about the cane toads, and suddenly everyone outside of the scientific world who had never heard of biocontrol before was hearing about how awful it was. Because it's kind of like the man bites dog story. Biocontrol was always considered wonderful, and then here's people saying, oh, but it's harming our native ecosystems. It's doing harm. And uh, it just became one of these fads in ecology. That's Russell Messing again, the scientist from Hawaii. People doing biocontrol have responded to these critiques. Back more than 100 years ago, when scientists and farmers were doing it, they were doing it sort of willy-nilly. In fact, a lot of times, they liked when the bugs they introduced ate lots of native species because they figured they'd be more likely to survive if that was the case. But today, if you want to introduce a parasitic wasp or fly, you have to do way more testing. You have to try to prove that the bug in question only attacks the pest you're targeting. It, it, it can take years. I had one project that took more than six years. I'm still, I'm still working on the project. So, how dangerous is biocontrol? How many horror stories are there? Here are the numbers that I could find. I have two studies. One looked at insects released to control other insects, and they found that out of more than 7,000 releases over the entire history of biocontrol, only 12 times have there been major impacts on non-targeted species. Another, looking at insects released in order to eat exotic weeds, again found that better than 99% had no significant impacts on the wrong plants. Those numbers even include the big mistakes that scientists made a century ago. But I don't think that most people have heard about that. But isn't that a bit short-sighted? What happens when we're overrun by lizards? Because when biocontrol works, it's invisible. It looks just like the natural world. Predators and prey in balance. Those dangerous introductions aren't being done anymore, and this is kind of an old-fashioned view, actually. But there are skeptics, even among the scientists. I talked to one of them, Dan Simberloff from the University of Tennessee. I asked him about those two studies. And so what you're saying is that probably that's underestimating. No, I'm saying more than that. I'm saying it's definitely underestimating. Dan's point is there simply isn't anyone going out to check after every one of these releases to see what's happening. What are those bugs eating? Are they eating some incredibly rare bug, the kind of bug that might make an entomologist's heart beat faster whenever they see it? For instance, Dan points out that right now there's an invasive, wood-boring beetle that is currently eating ash trees from Michigan to New England. The wasps that are being introduced to combat that beetle had to be tested to ensure they wouldn't attack native beetles. 
But here in the U.S., there are 150 kinds of wood-boring beetle. How can you possibly test to make sure that your new species that you want to introduce doesn't eat any single one of those? Some of them are so rare that, you know, they're only collected by entomologists once every decade, if that. What's the next question you should ask? Well, did they test all of those? Right. How many do you think they tested? Uh, uh, a dozen. At most. I doubt if they test a dozen. Then, of course, they would not test the rare ones because they can't find them. <laughs> now, Dan says he is not opposed to biocontrol. But I think it should be a last resort because of the fact that it's usually irreversible. <laughs> but his threshold for when it should be used is a lot higher. In fact, he's willing to let whole species of common plants be largely wiped out because he says eventually the ones that survive will slowly, over the course of centuries, repopulate with individuals that are resistant to pests. That, he argues, is a better solution because you're not risking driving some of these rare insects, the ones that we can't possibly test for, into extinction. I mean, because that, as a solution, doesn't really happen on a human time scale. Do you think that there's that's a palatable solution to propose to people? Um, I think it should be, but whether it is palatable, no. You know, where people generally want immediate gratification. <laughs> I get it. I, I get this. That senior producer, Taylor Quimby, he, I, and producer Logan Shannon just went into a studio to talk about this. And I think that you can take the long view, especially as one in which the human race is not the center point of what you're thinking about. In that view, the world is going to be fine. Some things will die off. Some things will go extinct. Other things will take their place. And in that sense, like, why are we bothering to meddle constantly in these processes that take millions of years and, and, and have you know, so much going on that we don't understand. The reason to intervene is a human-centric view of the world where we want to shape the world at any given moment to fit our needs best. And I think, I think that's okay, but I think putting it under the guise of conservation sometimes doesn't make sense because really this is about, listen, let's shape the world to be exactly what we want it to be, and that means we're going to pick winners and losers. I mean, I think we're self-preservationists. We will do whatever we can to survive. And not only will we do whatever we can to survive, we will do whatever we can to ensure that we have the things that we like, that we don't even need to survive. I think about the banana all the time. The amount of effort that has gone into saving this crop that we don't need to survive. Like, we could live our lives without a banana. To say that a bug that destroys a tree is an inconvenience is probably putting it maybe mildly because you're right, it is part of this web of an ecosystem. Other animals and, and other plants uh, rely on it. But at the same time, nature, life, life finds a way. <laughs> to think that we actually have control over this situation, I think, is the ultimate, uh, the ultimate way that humans are absolutely ridiculous. So I actually disagree with that. I think that we don't have absolute control and, and we can and, and that's a, that that's a hundred percent true. I think that 
we know much more than people realize and that we can weigh the risks and benefits pretty well. I mean, it is true that there will be a couple, you know, even even in this new world of biocontrol where we're being super careful compared to how things used to be, I think that there may be some that get away from us and maybe even some that get away from us disastrously. But that even so, if we look at overall this as a tool, the benefits that we as a society, yes, that we are cultivating for ourselves, for the way we like the world, those benefits will outweigh the damages that this as a tool causes um, by and large. And, you know, I might be wrong. Maybe there'll be something that gets loose and turns into some sort of superbug that wipes out agriculture as we know it. But I think that's kind of what it would take. I mean, it would take something on that big of a scale for us to to be talking about something that's consequential enough for us to discard this as a tool. But yeah, but the irony here is that if if that was to happen, that is that is the long view. That is self-correction because if we introduce some species, it, it's a disaster. We wipe out this giant amount of our food supply. All of a sudden, millions of people are starving to death. The human population dwindles, and we are. We, that is being corrected in the long view. Do you know what I mean? I mean, it all ends up being the long view, whatever the case may be. It's just the question of who's directing it. And yeah. so are we, are we going to say, like, you know, because we're not 100% sure what the consequences of our action will be, therefore we should take no action? Or, you know, are we going to try to shape the world to be how we want it to be? And I'm of the school of thought that, we should weigh the risks and benefits as, as much as we can and then do what we believe is right based on the knowledge we have. I think that makes sense. But I also think this reminds me of all those time travel movies yes. where people go back yes. in time and they try and change something and it all ends up happening anyway. That's, I think that's my point. It's like we're, you know, we can control it on the small scale. You know, Every year we're introducing new species. We're trying to do this. We're trying to do that. But down the road, none of it's going to matter. But I also feel like to not do it would be worse. To not make the attempt to save this plant. There, I don't. I mean, I don't see another solution to it. Pesticides would be worse. Yeah. You know, like a pesticide that would would theoretically. I mean, pesticides don't target individual bugs. Really. You, you know, I I guess I, I'm with you, which is to say that I don't actually think we should not do this. But let's not kid ourselves. The natural world is so complicated that you could have a very, very, very rigorous process for doing this, mm-hmm. and you still don't know what's going to happen or what could happen. I guess I'd argue that I believe that we are that the creatures that we are because of our advanced uh, brain capacity and our ability to sort of figure these sort of things out. We mess things up a lot too. Yeah. I, I don't think that we are right, and I don't think we're righteous. But I do believe this is our lot. If you think you know where you stand on this debate, I have just one more story. Remember the gypsy moth and the fly that was introduced, which went totally off the rails and became a scourge on the beautiful luna moth? That fly was a total failure as a biocontrol agent, and everyone I interviewed agrees it was a bad idea. But it does seem to have one upside. So brown tail moth is an insect that most of uh, your listeners have probably never heard of. Brown tail moth was another invasive species from Europe. 
But unlike gypsy moths, they're covered with these nasty hairs which blow around in the wind. So it causes severe allergic reaction in many people. For places that have brown tail moths, the recommendation is to wear a respirator, goggles, and coveralls tightly closed at the neck, wrists, and ankles whenever you're outside doing things like mowing the lawn for the entire summer. Sounds awful. There's even a documented case of someone dying from the reaction. It was a serious problem in the early 20th century, but today it's virtually gone. So what happened? Compsolora consonata, that same fly that killed nearly all of our pretty moths. The timing was perfect. We, we wrote a paper. We were convinced that Compsolora consonata was responsible for the decline of brown tail moth. It's a complicated world out there. So the real question is, knowing that we can never be 100% certain, what do you think we should do? That's Sam Evans-Brown, host of Outside In from New Hampshire Public Radio. This story was produced by Sam and Molly Donahue, with help from Taylor Quimby, Maureen McMurray, Logan Shannon, and Jimmy Gutierrez. This story was made possible by Saks, a new kind of underwear for men, with their patented ballpark pouch. Try a pair at saxunderwear.com outside. The Outside Podcast is a production of PRX and Outside Magazine. We'll be back next week.